All right, we are recording. Welcome to Mouth Sounds, the <laughs> podcast where we make sounds with our mouths. My mouth sounds today will be extra percussive because, because of my cough drop. Because of a lozenge. <laughs> yeah, just a rum-tum-tum-tumming <laughs> off of your teeth. I'll get all the ASMR kids with it. Yeah, that's... I like the... Oh, yeah. They, you know, they really do. We're going to have to buy you a little, like, recording device with, like, the earlobe on it that the ASMR girls, like, suck on on video. Have you ever seen these? Oh, no. Yeah, it's weird. Have you seen these? I have watched an <laughs> ASMR video. Of a girl sucking on an earlobe? There is, like a like, a silicone thing that goes on, like, the... The microphone, like the the microphone that picks up all of these like very detailed and very uh, specific sounds, and it's just like an ear. <laughs> there are are videos of yes ASMR artists. I guess we call them artists, uh, just like suckling on different parts of the ear. Oh, yeah. I don't. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. I have a lot of, not a lot, but I know some people who like when, when this thing was catching on and people were reporting on it, you know, in, in like 2012, 2013, when I felt like it was kind of at its like peak internet popularity, there were people who swore by it, like, yeah, this really works on me. Like, I feel it. I did not. I could not. Well, it's <clears throat> not a universal thing. I, it's just weird to me to think that there's like, uh, there's like a market for it now such that in a factory somewhere they're creating microphone sheaths with silicone ears on them yeah like specifically for that purpose yeah i mean anything that makes money will find a marketplace for you know innovation and and weird fake body parts weird fake body parts (laughs) yeah exactly they're vaguely sexual the my first interaction with asmr was uh yeah, through I think like a, like a Vice article or something, but like the first time I ever like listened to a full recording where I was interested enough in it to see like I wonder if this thing works uh, was uh, an artist who I actually think was Bay Area based for a little while and, and is now in in Europe somewhere probably Berlin, um, but her name is Holly Herndon mm-hmm. and she's pretty out there. She's like what Grimes wants to be, like she's like the real mm-hmm. like authentic, really fascinated by. The idea of of like biotech and things like mm-hmm. that, um, and not married to a billionaire, and not married to a billionaire, while also you know, yeah, touting her her you know progressive uh, bona fides or anything like that. Yeah. But uh, no, Holly Herndon like recorded a piece uh, where she just produced electronic sounds that were stimulating over mm. like an ASMR artist's voice. Interesting. And I was very unsettled by it. Because it's like a really, it's kind of like a fetishistic thing, you know, like, like the, the, the dialogue of it is, is all like, oh, you work so hard and you deserve Mm -hmm. some relaxation and Mm -hmm. like, you, you're so good. And I'm like, I don't like this. It's a little, yeah. I mean, for the people whose motor it gets going, uh, I would think that you would need to commit in that way for it to really have its effect. But if you're just kind of like there as a casual observer, it is not for you. Yeah. Like you're like, mm, I don't, I feel like you're very like inside of me right now. And I don't know that that's what I need at the moment. Yeah. I mean, part of it was certainly having to do with like a, a, a lack of just going with it, a lack of like really committing. And then another part of it too is like, I did a lot of drugs for a long time and like, 
I was listening to. And it's like, whatever stimulation you're getting from this, like, I promise you, like, just do drugs. Like, it's... <laughs> just do drugs. <laughs> like, it's fine. Like, there's none of that, like, will they or won't they? Like, is this for me kind of thing? It's like, no, you will... <laughs> You will feel the drug if you take the drug, I promise. Everyone's got their thing, right? Right. You know, we've all got we've all got stuff. Some well, of it legal, some of it not. Right. Well, um, I'm pleased to not be involved with with drugs anymore. So maybe ASMR is finally for me. <laughs> Speaking of ASMR, should we talk about Bruce Springsteen's gravelly voiceover I was, in the middle yes i was Super Bowl commercial i was gonna ask this as like a bit because i already know the answer but i was gonna People say been talking about his voice specifically in okay. in the in that commercial as I, being like kind of i don't know something soothing relaxing disarming i was gonna do it as a bit because i already know the answer and i was just gonna say carly did you uh watch the super bowl last weekend and i know that the answer is no my answer is no. I forgot it was the Super Bowl. I think we both forgot it In was fact, the Super Bowl. In fact, I was surprised to know that there even was one. Like, I had seen some fleeting, like, media conversations about the Super Bowl, and I thought it was like, because this is the time of year when we talk about it, not because there was an actual Super Bowl. And then I realized, uh, thanks to you and other people who are more informed than me, that football's actually been happening this entire time, mm -hmm. as have other sports. Yeah, it's one of those things that I thought about when Major League Baseball was happening and, like, the Dodgers, you know, won their World Series, which was like, yes, you won this competition, uh, but in a highly truncated season with lots of game cancellations, lots of, like things that you could and could not do in terms of the competition and the way that right. teams traveled and who was competitive and not because people were getting sick at the time. And so like part of me wondered like what is the legitimacy of this thing? I mean not to say that like a World Series win is always legitimate. Like we saw what happened with the Houston Astros. Totally. Right? But I, I wonder if there is some element that kind of undercuts the feeling of authenticity and the validity of that win for any of the players or any of the fans involved. Cause it just feels like it's not like a real season of, of sports, you know? Yeah. That's a good point. I think the thing that undercuts the validity for me is that 400,000 people have died in America. Yeah. So I'm kind of like, I don't, uh, I think maybe we can like, hold off on baseball totally. for a little bit. And I don't like, fault anyone who like, you know, takes some solace in and enjoys watching competition. Like that's, that's fine. Like by all means, it is strange though to, to, you know, at least I think maybe culturally place the same level of like grandeur and import on, on that's, that. That's what's disturbing to me is not that people are looking for an outlet. Lord knows we all need it right now. And, and as we just referenced earlier, everyone's got a thing. It's not that people are necessarily clamoring for it or needing some sort of, you know, collective relief. I totally understand and empathize with that. It is this weird, distorted level of importance that we're placing on it that just, it just feels anachronistic. It feels like out of context. And right. It just, it feels time. really detached from the severity of the actual lived experience of Americans in, in early 2021 after totally. a year that decimated not just like our our cultural uh, norms and, and our 
you know, economic sector and, and all of those things, but like it killed a, a lot of people. Killed and is still killing a lot of people. And it's it's weird to like look at it. And I, and I maybe we're, we're blanketing here and saying that people gave it that same level of import. I'm sure for a lot of people, it was just a nice reprieve and like. The show must go on, I guess. You know, I heard the weekend was okay at the halftime. I, you know, the game seemed pretty boring overall. Like the the Bucks like totally trounced the Chiefs. Um, but congrats to touchdown Tom and the Tampa Bay Buckaroos. Uh, Buckaroos. The Buckaroos <laughs> facing the Kansas City Chefs. Tom Brady winning his seventh. Career championship title. Seven. 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 Yeah. But we should talk about this Springsteen ad because yeah, this is the speaking, only thing we saw. Speaking of the show must go on. Oh boy. That's very much the uh, the message of, of this ad. In our continuing thesis that we are slowly receding back to a sort of cultural and societal ennui that mirrors much of what we were feeling in the 1990s. This is a pretty good supporting supporting uh, argument for that yeah. for that thesis statement. For a little bit of background context before you share your thoughts. Bruce Springsteen for the first time in his career as in a his career as a 71-year-old man, I believe he's 71, was the star of a commercial and it was a commercial for Jeep titled The Middle. Mm. It's no secret. The middle has been a hard place to get to lately. Between red and blue, between servant and citizen, between our freedom and our fear. Now, fear has never been the best of who we are. And as for freedom, it's not the property of just the fortunate few. It belongs to us all, whoever you are, wherever you're from. It's what connects us, and we need that connection. We need the middle. The message here is sort of a a celebration of the, as they say in the ad, reunited states of America, that there's, there's a, a middle ground that we can all meet on, that there's this sort of central plane of understanding that we can all come back to, that our differences are, but... Uh, superficial and skin deep and that if we can just have reasonable and kind and compassionate dialogue and discourse, we'll all agree on everything because we're Americans. Before we get into the politics of the message, I do think it's important to look at the politics of the message deliverer because that, I think, also heightened my level of like, I think that's what's so like confounding about it. <laughs> I when we watched it, I just immediately could not lock in. Like I was already at a distance because it felt so disorienting to see Bruce Springsteen in a commercial. Right. And commodified as like a a, a product or or a seller or peddler of a product. Commodified. Yes, that like he's spent so much of his career actively fighting against the co-opting of him, his brand, his image, his message. He has like turned away multi-million dollar deals. He has um, spoken out against, you know, the corporatization of America. Right. He was a he was a really vocal uh, opponent of 
the Iraq War in like 2006, 2007, when it was extremely unpopular to be against any military involvement in the war on terror. Completely. And he's done a lot of work in his songwriting, in his lyrics, and also just in the crafting of his image to put forth a pretty hard-won image of integrity and like working class integrity, Mm -hmm. right? And it it's always felt authentic and it's always felt like it's come from a place really informed by personal experience that it wasn't like a coat he was putting on or, you know, some, some mask. And I think that's probably vaguely what drew Jeep to him in the first place, right? Mm -hmm. That he has this kind of working class America image that's very well tread and, and very well respected But to insert him into a commercial for a product immediately dissipates the effectiveness of that image, right? That's why I was instantly caught off guard and instantly alienated because I'm staring at a man who's selling me a product. And while Springsteen has been selling us an image to a certain degree it's never felt like selling no it's felt completely authentic like you said and part of that authenticity comes from a recognition and acknowledgement of america and working class america as being a place full of contradictions right of like a spirit of like freedom and integrity and like good honest work but one that's constantly met with hardship i think the the most like remarkable thing about this too is that this is the man who wrote born in the usa Mm -hmm. and it's one of the easiest possible messages and easiest possible songs and hooks to co-opt into something that is a celebratory uh statement of being an american citizen while also completely ignoring some of like the really scathing indictments of america in the lyrics and he avoided selling that song for that very reason he knew that it was antithetical to like what he was actually trying to say with that song and with his entire career he kind of comes off as a charlatan. Like, it just doesn't feel like him. It totally. doesn't feel like he's delivering a, a, a real valid message. And I think that's that's more what it is, is, is that it, the message doesn't feel like his own. It feels very much like he's, that he's delivering it to us secondhand. Getting into now the politics of the commercial itself, I think starting from that place of Springsteen constantly... Um, anchoring himself to his working class roots and really speaking the truths of those experiences, inherent in that work has been an acknowledgement of class struggle. You know, for a lot of people in this country who have a vague sense of this imagined massive middle class that doesn't exist in real life, class struggle is a concept that is foreign at best and at worst completely inaccessible and unintelligible to them. Not so for Bruce Springsteen. He has often talked about uh, and sung about the economic implications of the way that this country is organized and how that has personal material consequences that play out on the collective scale. And so to deliver a message like come to the middle, which lots of stuff there, but who boy, but first and foremost, When you are delivering a message that says something like, to paraphrase, we just got to come together, that it's a it's not a matter of the structures of this society um, being the problem. It's simply a matter of opinion 
opinion being, you know, the difference in opinion being the the problem. Right. That tribalism is going to be the thing that defeats us and that like all of us really just want the same things. We just want it in different ways and we say it different ways. Precisely. And we, and we give different levels of import to the specificities of the desire. And it's this identity politics perspective that purely exists on the plane of opinions and tribes and cultural signifiers completely ignoring the thing that Bruce Springsteen has been talking about and singing about his entire career, which is the material and economic factors of our existence. When you say all we need to do is come together, come to the middle to find a common ground, you are disregarding that there are very real structural circumstances under which people come to have differences. Absolutely. And before we get criticized for trying to say like that we're defending the far right on the grounds of their economic anxieties. Because there was a Washington Post piece that got a lot of flack this week that was like, uh, 30% of the capital rioters uh, all have experienced economic anxiety. It's like, cool. Like 80% of America has experienced economic yes. anxiety. This is not a new thing. This is not surprising. This is also not a validation of the claim that like everybody who is part of the far right isn't really racist. They're just poor. Well, an asterisk to that. We do not do that same investigation of motivation on an economic, uh, on an economic plane when it comes to black people. Right. right? Nor That's, did. Yeah. We didn't do that with the Black Lives Matter protest last year. That is never year. a part of the conversation. Right. So before we get accused of saying that we're defending the far right uh, based on their material conditions, we are not. The point here is simply that you cannot actually make a valid logical claim that the left and the right want the same things. You just cannot. No. And this is a conversation we keep having and a conversation that we keep coming back to specifically because Clintonite centrism and like third way triangulation were sort of the dawning of this idea with, within the Democratic Party and within culture at large that like we all really want the same things. We just have to like find the ways to agree on them. We do not want the same things. When a right-wing policy position is to avoid raising the minimum wage, when a right-wing policy position is to gut social welfare programs, right, and get people off of them and uh, not give federal jobs guarantees and also, like, not hold the fossil fuel industry accountable, mm -hmm. not ban fracking, all these things. Like, when one side wants things that will keep people impoverished, keep people suffering, and also ultimately lead to uh, total planetary annihilation. Mm -hmm. And the other side says, we're willing to work with you. We don't get in opposition to those things. We get constant capitulation to things that are going to kill us. Which is what centrism is. Which is exactly what centrism, centrism is. Centrism is exactly what it sounds like. Whether, you know, many people see this spectrum uh, this way or not, liberals who consider themselves the left are not. It's easy to capitulate to a side that you don't necessarily finger quotes agree with when you aren't actually fighting for structural material changes in the status quo, when all you're fighting for are signifiers. If the best world that you can imagine stops at abortion rights, then I am sorry for you. Because let me tell you that there is so much more good that we can have as a, 
as a society if we are organized differently. Right. And if you have a cogent and coherent policy position on things, it's a thing that I think is so confounding for so many people who abide by this idea of like centrism or like left of center. You want to dismantle when you want to sort of approach and look at a specific policy position of the left and try to dismantle and say like, oh, this thing doesn't make any sense, right? This thing is illogical. This thing won't work on its own. Well, that's right. The point is that we have a more structured, more holistic idea of how to approach these things. So one thing by itself does not get rid of the other. You saw this play out with like the argument about like about canceling student debt, right? Where people are like, well, what about me if I've already paid my student debt? That's not fair to me. It's like, what about, uh, you know, like, what are you going to do for the people who have already done it? What are you going to do about the people who have more student debt? What are you going to do about the people who like don't have debt yet, but are going to college? You're like, you're absolutely right. We're working on a universal basic income. We're working on a federal jobs guarantee. Mm -hmm. We're working on free education. All of these things have to go together and coordinate in order for all of these things to make sense. And so it's easy to dismantle the logic of a single part of it from a centrist position because you don't actually have a holistic worldview. The further you go to the left, the more collective the perspective becomes, the more interconnected the perspective becomes. Entrenched in the center and anything to the right of it You are strictly operating and continuing to operate on the plane of the individual where policies and people do not affect one another. Um, And that's simply not how society works. Right. And on top of that, you know, the most frustrating thing about this commercial, if you just look at this message as a response to the call of our current moment, we have seen unequivocally Every single fiber of every single thing in this country right now, in the world, is telling us the status quo is fucked. And the last thing we need is compromise. The center will not hold, especially not- The center will not hold. The center, the middle is what got us here. We literally have more evidence of that than we could ever want. You have to be deluded to ignore that our current moment is telling us the way we've been doing things is not working and it is going to lead to continued ruin. So the last fucking thing I want to hear from a Jeep commercial is let's head on into the center. Right. Let's meet in the middle. Let's meet in the middle and let's compromise. No, this moment is calling for radical change. This message just felt like so wacky and like just completely lacking any sort of meaningful engagement with reality yeah it's the same current circumstances of most americans lives right now which is what's killing me it's just as tone deaf as when joe biden said it on the campaign trail this idea of like a call to unity being the thing that's important and everyone constantly pushing him and saying no we don't really need that message we don't need a reflection and a nostalgia for a time that we pretend existed that never did Right. We need to do something bold, progressive and different than those things, especially in the wake of catastrophe and especially in the wake of all this. And and the more to all of our liberal friends or listeners out there, you try to like hug the center or meet people in the middle. I promise you, the more you will find constant contradictions in yourself and constant contradictions in what you have to believe and what you have to be willing to compromise on. And it just doesn't have to happen if you move the other way, I promise you, it just does not have to happen. You're in the middle. You don't have to make sense. You can 
go one way for one person and go another way for another person. You can have all the contradictions exist at once because you're in the middle. Yeah, I, I think that that's maybe a good place to go into a conversation about the movie. This week we're discussing the 1995 David Fincher thriller, Seven. Happy Valentine's Day. We're talking about serial killers. Yes. We could not think of a more romantic movie to give you in the lead up to uh, to February 14th, 2021. Uh, it is all the things you're really looking for in just like a, a romantic romp around this time of year. I think, I think Seven is the perfect movie. It's the perfect Valentine's yeah, Day it's movie. The, it's the perfect movie for romance in the modern era, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in, a, in an inter-COVID world. Um, oh, God. But I think, you know, I can speak for both of us when I say that we just, like, think this movie's fantastic. Um, and, you know, really ushered in, I, I think, a, a really formidable career for a really exciting young director. Before this, David Fincher was... Uh, somebody who directed a lot of music videos. We already spoke about uh, Evita and Madonna. And then his first big Hollywood feature was the heavily cut, heavily uh, studio manhandled Alien 3. Mm. And you know I love the Alien franchise. You do. You do indeed. But I think at the time, Alien 3 was considered by many to be a disappointment, especially on the heels of two uh, hugely successful critically lauded films in Alien and Aliens. David Fincher was this exciting new director. Everyone thought that he was going to really knock the thing out of the park. Um, and in a lot of ways, the movie that he intended to make kind of did. It's available now and only in retrospect, really like uh, a decade after the film was released in 93. But uh, Thanks in- to some Snyder cut pressuring on social medias uh just sort of like a a, a digital remastering and and big uh like dvd collection release uh in 2003 they called it at the time the alien quadrilogy which i don't think is an actual word <laughs> they i think they've since changed the name of it to the alien anthology quadrology quad quadrilogy quadru- 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 the yugugali <laughs> that's right but uh there's there's no director's cut of Alien 3. There is what they call the assembly cut. So some people without David Fincher's direct involvement right. uh, cut together and put in a lot of uh, a lot of dailies and a lot of like unfinished footage and digitally remastered it, fixed the audio quality in it, and extended the movie into something that runs for I think about two hours and like 25, like two and a half hour film. Mm. Um, it's, it's pretty meaty. Uh, the final studio film was like shy of two hours. So they like put back in about 35, 40 minutes worth of footage here nice. that offers a ton of backstories, a lot of extra character development, a couple of subplots that add to the sort of like philosophical and thematic elements of the movie. Um, the assembly cut is a superior piece of filmmaking. And uh, David Fincher distanced himself really quickly from the movie. He was not happy with it. He was not happy with the studio involvement. He felt like his vision didn't come through. And of course, it didn't really make any money. It was pretty critically panned. So still to this day, does not acknowledge it really as as his debut feature, which makes Seven in 1995 the one I think that he considers his his first very own product. Um, And And what a product. And what a product. It's coming off of an original script that is 
exceptionally smart. I think like deceptively intelligent where mm-hmm. it's like you don't realize what it's doing until it does it. And just like masterful performance here from Morgan Freeman as well. Brad Pitt is Brad Pitt and and serves his purpose. But Morgan Freeman in this movie, holy fucking shit. He is literally breathtaking. I was holding my breath. I often say this about people who kind of blow me away on screen with with really subtle and evocative performances. And Morgan Freeman is just like so disquieting. He just like embodies his character with such a level of, I don't know, there's, you know, there there's two sides to him, right? There's this like, there's this inner struggle and turmoil that just like reads on his face. And like, you know, part of that is just like aesthetically the way Morgan Freeman looks, you know, kind of like, especially in the mid nineties as, as sort of a graying man, a little bit like craggly, a little bit kind of, you know, thin and frail, but, but with sort of this this power behind his eyes and in the way that he speaks and his commanding voice that everybody knows is the voice of God. Like (laughs) he's, he's just, he's so good. The, the moment at the end when he's like with quivering, you know, lips and in a, in a shuddering sort of voice, uh, telling John C. McGinley's character to like, to, to not come down here. Don't look here. John Doe has the upper hand. Gets me every time. It's something else. He's not like an explosive character in this movie. He's he's deliberately subdued. Like he's he's a calm, cool, collected person throughout 120 of the 126 minutes. But he is so intense. I was glued to the screen watching this movie, not just because of Morgan Freeman. There's a lot of work done, you know, cinematogra- cinematographically. Sure. That's a word. Cinematographically. Cinematographically. <laughs> Automatopoeia. Synecdoche. That just had me totally locked in from the first frames of the movie. I, you know, sometimes we'll take notes when we're watching for a conversation. And I'd say like two thirds into this movie, I looked down to my notepad and it was completely blank. And I realized that I was so engrossed in the movie that I hadn't written anything down. So I just wrote the word riveted. Yeah. In my notebook. <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> Those were my notes. We both were. We were completely just like magnetized to the screen. We were drawn in. You had not written anything except for riveted. I had taken uh, a blade to my fingertips already just because like <laughs> this movie just like, yeah. One of the things that this movie is often remarked upon for uh, is it's just like breathtaking, really, really kind of cruel, like biting ending that is up there like in in the pantheon of great, like, twist endings. Mm-hmm. Um, notably, Kevin Spacey involved in two of, like, the biggest, like, famous twist endings of the 90s, both of them in 95. He also had his uh, Academy Award-winning turn in The Usual Suspects this year. And he's, uh, he's got a limp, fake or otherwise, in both of those movies yeah. as well. Maybe he just couldn't, uh, he uh, wasn't able to shake it after <laughs> having it for the entirety of the shoot for The yep. Usual Suspects. But one of the, you know, for as popular as the ending to this movie is and and how, like, obviously we're going to spoil it at some point in this conversation. But at this point, the world has probably spoiled the ending of Seven for you. (laughs) You know, you have heard the phrase, what's in the box, if you even, if you haven't even seen the movie. Yep. Um, But one of the things that I did want to talk about, because I commented on it even as we, like, had, had hit play, is the beginning of this movie. It's a very weird introduction. It is. And I and I commented on it and it's always really thwarted me. It's always felt very strange, but there's like 10 minutes of movie before we get into 
a very considered, very orchestrated, like animated title sequence, mm-hmm. right? A lot like the one uh, that Netflix does for Mindhunter, the David Fincher produced series about serial killers, mm-hmm. because this is clearly uh, a, a subject of of uh, a deep passion for him. He's got a mild fascination with it. He certainly does. But the beginning of this film is like, just kind of throws you into the action like in meteorettes. Like it, it is Somerset, Morgan Freeman's character, being dropped right into a murder. Brad Pitt's character just sort of like shows up. He sort of, you know, gives a little bit of a backstory that like, oh, he went down to the precinct and then they told him to come there to meet Somerset and, and uh, you know, just to get into the action. And then we have sort of like a, a brief coda before we go into into the, the title sequence where Somerset is at home reading and then taking off his glasses and then starting a metronome and falling asleep. For a long time, I thought this was weird. I thought that this was an artistic contrivance because Fincher couldn't figure out how to start the film. I felt like there was probably a longer sequence there at some point. I did read that, in fact, there was a, a much longer introduction to these characters. But... In reevaluation, I have come to, I think, really appreciate the way this film starts. Because it sort of drops you in the action, because it happens in media res, because we don't get much backstory, we don't get a lot of like classic cinematic introduction to the characters, it has this near mythic quality to it. It feels a little bit more dreamlike. It feels a lot like the pieces that the film cites, right? Like uh, like uh, Dante's Inferno, like... Uh, like a, a paradise lost, right? Like it, it feels like this like kind of more grand philosophical eternal idea, right? Like it, it just sort of springs into existence instead of giving us the spark that ignites. It's it's already happening. Mm-hmm. The reason you are immersed in the story from the opening frames is precisely because of the fact that he drops you in. You're just there orienting yourself um, you don't get this sort of cool, calm lead-in where there's, you know, an introduction chapter and then there's a meet the players chapter and then there's an inciting incident. It does feel like it has this sort of epic literary quality. Um, if you think about, you know, pieces like Homer's Odyssey or Dante's Inferno, which are sort of rip it, written in this epic style. Mm-hmm that do really insert you into the world, insert you into the events of the universe from the get-go. It is a very particular way to tell a story. And I agree with you that that is not done incidentally. I'm thinking specifically of, of one short sequence in the opening, in the entirety of the opening sequence, which is when Somerset and... Um, Mills are walking uh, out of the precinct into uh, the rain on a sidewalk. Somerset Morgan Freeman's character is asking Mills, I don't understand, you you worked to get transferred here? Like, why would you want to come here to this place? We immediately know what he's talking about because we've David Fincher has shown us the detritus of of the surrounding Mm -hmm. city and the sort of human suffering that's on display. The rain and the the camera's perspective, I think, do a lot that kind of happen in other ways and in other instances in the movie to at once insert you into the universe, but also do communicate this dreamlike kind of 
you know, mythic quality that you're talking about. Absolutely. Fincher is someone who is often praised for uh, his masterful uh, handle on generating atmosphere and creating like a world, right? His, his aesthetic is at once immediately noticeable, but also relatively invisible, which is a thing that's really hard for people to do, but makes him one of those kind of cinematic auteurs that we talk about, right? It's the reason he's praised by people like the Tarantinos of the world. That atmosphere lends itself too to that epic mythic quality that you're talking about, right? We feel a very real detachment, a really um, kind of like subsumption into a place that at once feels immediately familiar as a decaying urban landscape, but that also feels very otherworldly, very kind of like descent into a ring of hell. Juxtaposed with the ending of the film, which takes them into a bright, blue-skied, like sunlit pasture. Almost this sort of like utopian place amidst these like cables and in an open field. And for the first time we see the sprawl and we see the space. For the first time in the entire film, there's like a really, really intense emphasis given to the distance and the separation between the characters and how far they have to move from one another. It's, I mean, it's a a pretty literal mirror to Dante's journey Mm -hmm. in Inferno. He goes through the seven circles of hell and when... If, if you've read any of Inferno or have some familiarity with the story, with the poem, you, you know that Dante sort of winds around. That's his path. That's his trajectory upward. And as he winds around, he passes things and encounters things and encounters horrors along the way. That's the whole sort of narrative device. And this movie is architected the exact same way. We have this sense of our travelers kind of winding through this city and passing, encountering all of these horrific scenes, these horrific emotions, these lessons. You know, before they even talk about Dante's Inferno, you're sort of primed to read it that way. The other thing that David Fincher does really well and, and sort of solidified in this film that he's carried into all of his other movies to an even more extreme degree is his his sort of like unflinching obsession with the camera as this like omniscient device. Uh, He hates handheld. He often avoids close-ups when he can. There's only one moment in this entire film where there's a handheld shot and it's when we're following uh, Mills, Brad Pitt's character, through the halls of the apartment as he's Mm. pursuing John Doe when they, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, go and and visit him and and find his, his domicile. Fincher has gone on record as saying that like he treats the camera as god he treats the camera as the view that anticipates and tells us where we should be looking and knows almost intrinsically where things are going to to happen within the frame it also adds a certain level of this sort of like unflinching imperative statement of powerlessness on behalf of the viewer and on behalf of the subjects in in the film itself, like you feel like these people are fated to do and say and go wherever they are already on their way to going. There's a very fatalistic quality to this film. One of the scenes in particular that I think of is another uh, scene similar to them walking in the rain. They're doing that again um, and walking back to the precinct after having seen the fifth murder the the woman whose face is cut who kills herself with the sleeping pills 
And we see a conversation between Mills and Somerset from the opposite side of the street. And we, we track with them as they walk into the precinct. At the same time, a cab rolls up and parks just into frame and two feet step out. And those two feet belong to John Doe, who then walks into the precinct. But the camera knows. The camera insists that something's going to happen there. The camera's already set up in a way that tells us, you're looking here, but something else will happen. And it's it's a quality in his filmmaking that just like persists and has only like evolved and developed throughout. It's just like really fascinating to watch happen. Like he has, I think, a very specific and distinct worldview and perspective that he brings into his filmmaking. And and David Fincher's fingerprints are like all over this thing. I have come to appreciate his his utilization of the camera as a really productive part of the storytelling and of like evoking a mood uh, more than I had previously. The thing that his his perspective on the, the sort of functionality or the, the role that the camera plays also does is, and this is something you and I talked about with regards to that scene in the office when they're talking with, I guess he's the chief. I don't know what he is. Yeah, Arlie Ermey's character. Arlie Ermey's character. Which, brief aside, tons of great character actors in this movie. Arlie Ermey's here. Leland Orser shows up for a minute. John C. McGinley as like the SWAT team guy. But there's a lot of lot of cool people in this one. They're talking with Arlie Ermey's character. It's the three of them. And you were sort of breaking down the ways in which the camera informs our understanding of their relationship and the relationship not only between the three of them, but also sort of against the three of the, the three of these people and the, the ways in which the, the camera sort of situated for us to understand that, um, you know, Brad Pitt is kind of alienated from their conversation and mm-hmm. seen as separate. The other scene I think of when I think about the camera sort of informing us about the relationship or potentially the sort of headspace of the characters is at the very end of the movie when John Doe, Kevin Spacey's character, uh, Mills, Brad Pitt's character, and Somerset, Morgan Freeman's character are all driving in the car at the behest of John Doe, who has said, "Uh, I'll show you where these final two bodies are, Mm -hmm. but you guys got to take me out there yourself right. and no one else can be with us. So it's just the three of them in the car and they're like, you know, helicopter is following them at a distance, but it is just the three of them. And the camera does this thing where Mills and John Doe are having a conversation and Mills is, is agitated by John Doe. He mm-hmm. despises him clearly. He, you know, thinks he's insane and he's sort of like riling him up or attempting to. And John Doe is sitting behind, uh, you know, a cage in the back seat, explaining to Mills what his reasons are for the, doing the things that he did and, and why Mills is wrong. We are uh, focused on Mills and Kevin Spacey having the conversation. Morgan's Freeman, Morgan Freeman's character is silent nearly the entire time. Mm-hmm. But the camera often cuts to Morgan Freeman where we are staring at him at a what I guess is a 90 degree angle. And what this kind of back and forth and this trilogy of angles we get in this conversation did for me was really posit Mills as an antagonist. Mm -hmm. And we can get into his role sort of narratively as an antagonist too. But I was 
very aware of how antagonistic he was being not only to John Doe, but also to Somerset. Right. And I was bothered by it. I was like agitated by his aggressive antagonism and very aware of the disruption to the sort of order of things that he was causing with this like poking and prodding and, you know, dismissing him and calling him names. And I felt very uh, materially the sort of emotional space that Somerset and Kevin Spacey's character were feeling with regards to Mills. Yeah, absolutely. The camera in those scenes definitely favors Morgan Freeman, um, even as he's talking to Brad Pitt. And I actually went back and revisited parts of this this scene before they kind of get into a more heated exchange, before Brad Pitt and, and, and Kevin Spacey get into their more heated exchange. And even before that, Brad Pitt is inquiring and asking questions of Kevin Spacey's character. And even in the blocking, we see Kevin Spacey from the driver's side of the car in the back seat. And while he's answering Brad Pitt, he is looking directly at where Morgan Freeman would be sitting. And so even in the blocking prior to that kind of more triangulated shot, reverse shot, there's this very subtle but implied directive towards the relationship between John Doe and Somerset rather Mm -hmm. than between Mills and John Doe. And I think that this is a great place to jump into this kind of like trilogy of worldviews that are are embodied here. I think it's really easy in this movie, as we talked about, to see John Doe as the principal antagonist. He's the bad guy. But I think a more investigative reading of the film actually posits and actually shows that the real conflict and antagonism here is between the competing ideologies of Mills and Somerset, of Mm -hmm. the partners. John Doe acts as a catalyst through which Somerset finally... Uh, is changed and and changes her perspective and worldview and the way that Mills is also profoundly changed through experiencing despair and and tragedy at the hands of this killer. He is the action. He's the sort of explosive, like almost kind of MacGuffin of the entire thing. But he's also the thing that helps to reveal their ideologies along the way. He's mm-hmm. not only the thing that catalyzes the change in each of those characters, he's the thing that helps them to have a discourse around their beliefs in the first place throughout the course of the movie. Absolutely. And I guess if I were to try to take a stab at what the the ideologies that are competing for space in this film are... Yes, please do. <laughs> the argument here is is very centrally kind of a philosophical one about man's capacity for evil and the existence of evil in the world and how best to approach and how best to interrogate that thing and how to respond to it. Whereas Somerset has been around the block a few times, has experienced tragedy, has experienced loss, and has seen the depths of humanity. He's grown up in it. He's grown up in it. Uh, He finds that the best way to approach this thing is with a calm remove, a distance, almost an apathy towards it. Mills, on the other hand, is someone who is brash, young, principled, who believes that you have to be willing to fight against the evil. You have to try and help people. We even see it in the beginning, in the scene that you cited in the rain. Mills actively pursued a job in homicide in this city that's just like a, a center of urban decay and rot that Somerset can't wait to get out of. Mm-hmm. John Doe is somebody who mirrors Somerset, 
who also sees humans' capacity for evil, who recognizes it, but who has a certain level of resolve to decide that I'm going to turn the sin against the sinners. I'm going to act on this thing and I'm going to kill. And it's a really, really profound moment at the end of this film when you see Mills reacting, when you see Mills becoming agitated, when you see Mills working against this ideology that feels coherent that John Doe is presenting to him in favor of the easy solution, which is you're crazy, you're a madman, you're deranged. All of these things are happening and you see in that camera, in that in those angles that favor Somerset, that Somerset actually agrees more with John Doe than he does with Mills mm-hmm. in this moment. Despite the fact that he wouldn't ever kill anybody because of those things, their basic premise and their basic worldview is the same. Mm-hmm. And they speak the same language oftentimes. It's it's Somerset who's able to decode a lot of the things that John Doe is telling us with his crimes and is also able to decode a lot of the literal language he's using, biblical, poetic, or otherwise. Mm-hmm. And it makes you realize he's he's literate in that language because they do align in their core beliefs. They do sort of hold the same worldview. The other thing that kind of... I would say unifies each of their ideologies in terms of the the movie's message itself mm-hmm. or the movie's the movie's worldview, right? right? There are the there are the you know three worldviews of these characters, but then there's a kind of larger ideological understanding of how society is organized that the movie presents us with. Mm-hmm. And the the thing that unifies the three characters' set of beliefs is this kind of preternatural existence of evil, mm. this preternatural existence of crime, that crime is a, a, a manifestation of evil. There is not in any of their conversations or their discourse any acknowledgement or investigation into the idea that crime may be, and in fact is in most cases, uh, a direct result of desperation and economic hardship. Right, that it's actually an extension of and, a, and an expression of precarity rather than something that is an extension and a manifestation of intrinsic evil. A conversation that illuminates this pretty clearly is the conversation that Somerset and Mills have at the bar. Yes, this is one of my favorite scenes in the film. I'm glad you're bringing this up. I just don't think I can continue to live in a place that embraces and nurtures apathy as if it was a virtue. You know different. You know better. I didn't say I was different or better. I'm not. Hell, I sympathize. I, I sympathize completely. Apathy is a solution. I mean, it's, it's easier to lose yourself in drugs than it is to cope with life. Yeah. It's easier to steal what you want than it is to, to earn it. Yeah. It's easier to beat a child than it is to raise it. Hell, love costs, it takes effort and work. We are talking about people who are mentally ill. We are talking about people fucking crazy. No, no, yes. we're not. No, no. Today. We're, we're, we're talking about everyday life here. You, you should listen to yourself. Yeah. You say that the problem with people is that they don't care. So I don't care about people. It makes no sense. You know why? You, you care. You, you want to know? Damn right. And you're going to make a difference. Whatever. The point is, is that I don't think you're quitting because you believe these things you say. I don't. I think you want to believe them because you're quitting. 
And their conversation is about kind of the nature of crime and the nature of people. And in a nutshell, um, Morgan Freeman's argument is something to the effect of crime happens because it's a lot easier than doing the hard thing, which is... Which is uh, loving and taking care of people. The good work, mm -hmm. right? The, the good work of God. Loving, taking care of people, um, doing the right thing. Inherent in that statement is a, a kernel belief that that evil is a choice for everyone, that it, it simply exists and your participation in evil is a matter of choice, a matter of personal will, one way or another. Right, and it almost even posits like committing evil or committing crime as a failure of your resolve. It makes it a completely individual thing that says... You just are lazy. Precisely. You, you want to do the easy thing and take that route instead of the hard thing. It is precisely that. It is a matter of personal will and it is a matter of the individual. It is not acknowledging crime on a collective or societal scale. It is a matter of personal will and it is a matter of the individual. Despite the fact that they are literally surrounded by an entire collective of people who are experiencing a thing that is leading them to crime. And the thing that I, I think is, is fascinating about that particular perspective is it so readily supports and celebrates this idea of meritocracy that came to full-throated fruition in the 90s under Clinton-era politics. Mm -hmm. We go back to this a lot, but it's because it's a really formative belief of you know how the world and people are organized for this particular decade that has a lot to do with why things are the way they are now. And the the statement that, you know, Clinton had made either on his campaign trail or at some point during his presidency was, you can only earn as much as you learn. And this is the central foundation of meritocracy. If you try hard enough, if you work hard enough, it's a matter of personal will, not circumstances. If you work hard enough, if you try hard enough, you will be successful in this life and right. you will have earned it. Inherent in that argument, of course, being that everyone in our collective uh, society is afforded the same possibilities and the same level of, uh, of, of capacity. All, all of us have the same freedoms. All of us have the same opportunities. Morgan Freeman's perspective in this bar scene is a, just such a perfect crystallization of that. He believes that the existence of crime is simply one of a lack of personal resolve, is simply one of a lack of merit. And that when we find these, these centers of urban decay, when we find these cesspools of human suffering, it is not because of decisions or failures of the government that is supposed to take care of the people who need it most. It is a problem of the individual. It is a problem of will. It is a problem of laziness. You're making me realize that within the context of the film, John Doe also embodies this perspective of uh, a sort of equal opportunity for all. He's, a, he's an equal opportunity murderer. Um, when you look at his victims, right? Like there is like a, a model, you know, who lives in like a, a big penthouse apartment there's a very wealthy lawyer who's who's murdered, but also there's a, a drug dealer. There's a an intensely obese person who it's mentioned is definitely a shut-in 
potentially somebody who doesn't go out, potentially someone who's depressed, who doesn't have a lot of family members who would even come calling or know that he was in trouble or, or, or dead because this person was able to be tortured for a week on end. There's a sex worker in here too, who's also someone who it's, it's never addressed how or why she's somebody who works in the sex trade, right? Like it's, her sin is supposedly lust, but then you have to ask yourself, like, who's the really lustful person here? Is it the sex worker? Is it the person who who uh, pays for her services? And that person actually gets off scot-free. I mean, granted, incredibly traumatized by having been the person to commit violence, but he doesn't die. And so there's, yeah, a, a complete refusal to acknowledge any of the structural dependencies, any of the structural motivators for the way that those people are and simply choosing to punish people for those things. And this is one of those things that I think, you know, when we, when we try to arrive at a central thesis for the film, especially in the context of Seven as a 90s movie, which is what we always try to do, is that for as subversive as the film is, it often betrays a much more conservative and orthodox perspective on good and bad on crime and on the nature of protectors and people in our in our communities who are endowed with the responsibility to protect it's still very much a part of this greater narrative of bad people who need to be brought to justice by police and that bad is inherent to the nature of human humankind and so there will always be a need for us to police it and fight it in a, a carceral and in a judicial system the way that it exists which is already i think a little bit regressive in terms of its philosophies but thinking about this movie within the context of the 90s and with its proximity to the 1994 crime bill uh, that clinton signed that joe biden helped to architect and and draft it's almost inescapable that this movie helped to sort of solidify a lot of that very reactionary feeling about crime and about the rise of, of gang violence and, and drug epidemics and all of these societal ills that were occurring in the late 80s and early 90s. When you start to look at this movie through the lens of its proximity, as you said, and through the the kind of like pervasive beliefs of the crime bill. It is absolutely inescapable what a complete and uh, necessary cultural output a movie like this would be mm -hmm. as a response to that pervasive thinking. The, the crime bill was a response to um, the massive wave of crime and drug usage in the 80s, which were themselves a massive response to a lot of other societal factors that came before. I will briefly note that oftentimes throughout the course of our history in America, Black leaders have cited the ways in which Black people are given incremental and highly scriptured versions of freedom uh, and then not sort of given the, the other stuff that comes with freedom that white people have had from the get-go. Even the statement in the middle commercial that says uh, the very ground we stand on is is common ground is... It clearly is not. It clearly that. is not. We stole it through mass murder of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of 
Native and Indigenous people that lived here. But I digress. The rights that have been afforded to white people from the get-go are things that we have sort of bit off in chunks and given to Black Americans over the course of their history in this country. And what happens when you give a Black man freedom, and Martin Luther King famously spoke about this, but you don't give him land, which is what happened when slaves were freed, you find another way to oppress him. You find another way to shackle him. And that has happened throughout the course of Black Americans' history in, in this country. And the 80s were a, a response to um, that very same thing. It was an, another notch in that incremental move forward where segregation had ended and on paper there were a lot of things signaling that Black people were more free than they had been previously. But it was also met and followed up with a lot of really, really destructive and highly racially motivated redlining and um, things that just decimated our cities and disproportionately targeted black people. So again, it's like freedoms are afforded, but there is a new a new way to to oppress uh, a certain class and a certain race of people in this country. And there is a there is always a response. There right. is always an outcome. And so the 80s are, you know, there's a lot of things that fed into the problems we saw in the 80s, but crime in particular was was a direct result of a lot of a lot of this white flight and this complete just drying up of social welfare programs right. for a lower class. And this is part of the, the neoliberal project that began under Reagan that the Democrats were very involved in and that came to I think it's it's sort of apex under Clinton. And you if you if you look at the crime bill as sort of in contact with that, you see that it's not actually addressing the problem. It is addressing a symptom, and that is the worldview that has been set up for us. And and frankly, it is the thing that has led to mass incarceration, which was a controversial term for a long time, despite the fact that it's an objective fact. It has led to a bloated and completely brutalizing police state. The crime bill itself did nothing other than to act as sort of a punitive as you said, highly reactionary response to what was ultimately a pretty substantial economic problem in mm -hmm. this country. And this movie does the exact same thing. This movie reinforces that worldview wholeheartedly. Right. A big conversation and big narrative around the justification for the crime bill was just the complete, uh, how, how out of control crime was in the mid and early 90s. Uh, one of the most famous examples of this is from highly qualified and greatest woman to ever exist, Hillary Clinton, who defended the crime bill using, uh, you know, the famous super predator line yep. and uh, still is not particularly apologetic about it. Like she has come out since and in the documentary that dropped last year, like her four part Hulu docuseries, um, didn't really have much justification for it. She kind of makes the claim that oh, I was just remarking on a phrase and, and a, a title that was being used in the media at the time and using it myself. And she also claims that she wasn't putting a race on anything either, that it was that her her rhetoric was about gangs, not about any specific race of people. People were then taking out of context things that I said and did. 
We also have to have an organized effort against gangs. We need to take these people on. They are often connected to big drug cartels. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. I was talking about gang members. I was talking about vicious gang members. You don't hear me putting race on it at all. But did you have to then apologize during this election for that? I don't remember. I don't. I mean, I was, you know, always saying, trying to explain things that people didn't want to hear. Like, of course we know who you're talking about. We, of course, we know that this is a racialized rhetoric. And this movie kind of abandons the reality of that thing in mm-hmm. favor of a criminal and in favor of an evil that is more sort of omniscient, more educated, more intelligent to make us see and make us think that the compounding of these brutalizing forces and this these different crimes will ultimately result in people who have every pathway and opportunity, like a John Doe, who, as the, the film describes, is independently wealthy and well-educated. Those people will also commit evil and they'll have more capacity for it and they'll have more resources to do it well and we won't be able to fight it. It's just bizarre watching it now, you know, and, and seeing the ways in which this this very subtly but like very evidently enforces and reinforces that perspective, that idea that like we have to treat the symptom, that we have to fight the crime with the police instead of saying like, what is the nature of the crime? Like the idea that evil and crime and humanity in, in humanity's existence are preternatural, are are de facto is yeah it 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 takes it out of the realm of the material it takes it out of the realm of the structural and makes it more philosophical Mm -hmm. and i think that that does a severe disservice to all of the material reality of where crime comes from and why these things happen and i think we often dehistoricize the ways in which we were socialized as kids and even adults back then to understand a pretty simple dichotomy. Crime exists, police are the antidote. Completely disregarding all of the things that lead to those two manifestations, right? Those two things coming to be. I might actually just keep that siren in the final (laughs) edit, just realizing that you said crime exists and police are the antidote and a cop car on the street responded in kind with a whoop whoop. Just like, hey, what's up? I'm here. But, you know, I grew up believing that. I never investigated why crime happened. Right. It was we're, just we're this told sort of, not to ask that question. We're we're told to simply say there are bad people. There are bad people. And this, so there need to be good people. This oblique idea of evil. And this movie uh 1000% reinforces that dichotomy. To to make the claim from Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden or anyone else who came up during this particular class of of Democrats that these things were not racialized is patently false and racist in and of itself, if you ask me. Yeah. The legislation in the crime bill that specifically targets uh, different sentencing mandates for cocaine and crack cocaine is 1000% racially motivated. We know that now. Absolutely. Full stop. Like, that is not a thing you can deny. Right. And a three strikes rule, right? A three strikes rule we- is absolutely racially motivated and we know that recidivism rates were already higher amongst uh you know blacks and latinos and and specifically blacks and latinos in urban areas there was a guy who got 25 to life in the 90s for stealing a slice of pizza because of a three strikes rule like can you imagine getting a life sentence for like jacking a slice of pizza 
Because you're hungry. And why? Right, exactly. Why would you need to do it in the first place? Why do you think that person took that slice of pizza? It's mm-hmm. not because he simply wanted to be bad, you know, despite what our, our friend, little guy who uh, stole his mom's car and says it's fun to do bad things and do hood rad shit with my friends, <laughs> you know, like this is not, that's not, that's not evident here. Yeah. And yeah, so this movie, you know, I, I think sort of happens upon reinforcing this thing, but certainly was probably motivated and informed by a lot of the feelings of the, the sort of recklessness and, and fear that pervaded the, the late 80s and early 90s. You know, like people writing original material, people creating art are always reacting in some way to the society in which it's developed. And I can't help but assume that the script was penned with a lot of those uh, that that feeling of of loss, that feeling of senselessness around like how bad the crime situation was getting, not at all investigating the fact that like that situation is a byproduct of the neoliberal project. And most of popular opinion, most of mainstream media did not have the language to talk about the symptoms we were experiencing of these very real material circumstances we didn't have the language to explore those things beyond what we were given which was taught to us in schools it was you know taught to us through like the dare project we didn't have you know another another language to investigate these things or or understand these things for fear of sounding like we are degrading this film or speaking about it in any sort of derogatory way i think it's important to know that like this film is, is one that we both loved and still love and makes it a thousand times more fascinating as a cultural artifact of the time. I think one of the saving graces of the film that makes it elevated more intelligent than like a speed or any other film that that falls into the sort of cop fetishization that we see constantly in the mid 90s is that it takes it into a more spiritual and more sort of ephemeral plane of existence. Uh, can't recommend it enough. Like I, I have always sort of gone back and forth on this movie, but I think that this last watch really solidified my affection for it and my insistence that it is actually like a masterpiece of the 90s. I wholeheartedly agree. I've always liked this movie, which is a lot for me because I'm not a person who is drawn to, you know, gory thrillers or um anything even remotely involving the whiff of a serial killer. That's just not my jam. But I've always really liked this movie and it's because it's beautiful and it's contemplative and all of the things that we've talked about. But I appreciate it so much more understanding the societal and political, you know, milieu that it is a manifestation of. It makes the movie so much more so much more fascinating, as you said, and not only that, but but helps me to understand the story better in a way that I, you know, hadn't previously. I think it's a good place to close uh, with just a, you know, a, a four-thumbed recommendation to go and watch Seven as soon as possible. We are Hit Factory, as always. You can follow us at Hit Factory Pod on Twitter. Patreon.com slash HitFactoryPod to subscribe. A reminder that for the month of February, we are going to be donating all of our Patreon proceeds to Hotels Not Hospitals to uh, put a roof over the head of some of our unhoused neighbors during the pandemic. They are an awesome organization. We want to give lots of money to them. If you haven't already, please go back and listen to our introduction to H&H with organizer and activist Edna Kozakaro from that program. Carly does a lot of work with them as well. Shout out to our capitalist overlord, Linda. And uh, we will be coming back to you sometime soon. Cheers, y'all. Have you been praying? They still have no answer. Have you been pouring?
It's like a